Revelation chapter 4 and 5 leads us into a new area uh, in, the, in the story of the book of Revelation. Um, so we'll uh, join together at the throne of God's grace and let's ask His blessing and the guidance and the illumination of the Spirit. And uh, we'll jump into it. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity of gathering together this evening. And Lord, we recognize that apart from the presence and the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, our time here would be wasted. We do pray for his guidance, his illumination, and not only to be enlightened so that we can understand what your word is saying to us, but to be enabled to go and live in light of the truths that we're going to see. So, Father, open our minds and our hearts. Help us to be humble and submissive as the Spirit of God speaks through His Word. Let each and every one of us hear the message that you have for us this evening, and we will give you the thanks and the praise, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, <clears throat> it's very important when we start off in Revelation chapter 4, we see the phrase, after these things. That should ring a bell in your mind after these things. Sometimes these little words and phrases are so important. Uh, oftentimes in passages, little words like in and by are critical. Um, so does this uh, little phrase ring any bells after these things? It's actually a part of the outline of the book. So if you will turn back with me to chapter 1 and verse 19 where John gives us, and this is very typical, obviously John was a Jew, uh, he thought in a Jewish way, and he really writes the book of Revelation in a very Jewish fashion. Uh, Hebrew, for example, is a very pictorial language, uh, unlike Greek, which is uh, very intellectual uh, and uh, very... Uh, developed as far as the grammar is concerned. Hebrew, so to speak, is a simple language. It's difficult to study because all of the alphabet is different than our alphabet. But once you learn the alphabet and you begin to understand some of the basic rules of Hebrew grammar, <clears throat> you realize that Hebrew is much, much simpler than the Greek language. And be that's because that's the way that they thought. Uh, their thinking was pictorial. They thought in signs. They thought in pictures. And you'll remember that in chapter 1, Jesus said that he had sent his angel to sign the book, the lessons of the book to John. To signify is the word that's used, but it literally means to show in signs. So we're going to see a lot of signs in the book of Revelation and the interesting thing about Revelation is you can't understand Revelation if you don't have a good grasp of the rest of Scripture. Much of what we're going to see in the book of Revelation is going to take us back to Genesis. It's going to take us back to the book of Daniel. It's going to take us to the book of Ezekiel. We're going to go to a lot of different places. And that's because writing as he did, uh, he was writing in the mentality and the mindset uh, of the Jewish people. So when you come back to chapter 1 and verse 19, <clears throat> it's very typical in Jewish thought to tell you at the beginning of the book, somewhere in the beginning of the book, what 
the outline of the book or what the theme of the book is all about. We find it in Romans, we find it in Galatians, we find it in the book of James. It's very, very common. Sometimes you'll even have, as in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about his mission as an apostle to bring people to obedience to the faith. Well, then when you get to chapter 16 and verse 26, he closes out the book with the idea of the obedience to the faith. And this is what we call bookends. So what he's really giving us is a theme that he wants us to follow through the book. Here we have not only the theme, which is given in verse 18, is actually the words of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking here, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. The command then in verse 19, write the things which you have seen. What had John seen at this point? Well, he saw the vision on the island of Patmos, which he records for us there in chapter 1. And the things which are, <clears throat> present tense. In other words, dealing with present history. That relates to what we saw in our last time together, chapter 2 and 3, the church age. And then the things that will take place after this. Unfortunately, our translators have done us a disservice here because it should say after these things, exactly as we have it at the beginning of chapter 4. So after these things tells us that we're past the things that are. Remember the outline of the book? I can just do a quick graph. You have what you have seen. Chapter 1, the vision of the glorified Christ. Then you have chapters 2 and 3. And in chapters 2 and 3, you have the things that are present tense church age. Chapter 4 and 5, we have after these things, we're going to see the church in heaven, and then chapter 6 enters us into the tribulation proper. Uh, it's very interesting, we won't have time to do this tonight, but if you go back to Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus gives us particularly chapter 24, he gives us an outline of end time events from the end of the church age through the tribulation into the second coming of Christ and then into the millennium. And it's a very, very interesting outline. And as I said, little words are sometimes very important. And one of the very important little words in Matthew 24 and 25 is the little word then. Every time he uses the word then, he's talking about a development in time. Then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, and so on and so forth. So after these things moves us now after what we would refer to 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture of the church. Christ is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be. That's taken place between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And we'll see how this relates to that in just a moment. After these things, John says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Very interesting that standing open is in the perfect tense. 
The perfect tense indicates that that door was opened at some point in the past and it's still open. I would take the point of opening the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. The work of Christ on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection opened the door for us to enter into the presence of God. So a door standing open. Uh, when Jesus said it is finished in John 19.30, his work on the cross was done. The penalty for sin was paid. The way into heaven was open. Yes, Lyle. I had a question about the perfect tense because I'm wondering, does that imply the door is going to stay open for everybody? It doesn't indicate it doesn't indicate that. The perfect tense indicates something that occurred at some point in the past with the result that it continues to the present time. It doesn't anticipate the future. Okay. But I mean obviously the door is, is still open. And continues to be open. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, as long as it's not closed. Yeah, well, it won't be closed until time's done, right. right? So the door was open in heaven. The first voice that I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. That takes us back to chapter 1. Saying, come up here. You remember the passage I just quoted in 1 Thessalonians 4? The Lord will descend with a shout. What do you think his shout is going to be? I think it's going to be, come up here. Come up here and I will show you things which must, must take place. Again, we have the phrase, after this, after these things. A little bit of emphasis there. Immediately, John says, I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven. Now, <clears throat> the notes that I would have given you if I had run them all off, as I said, they're fairly extensive. And even at that, they don't cover everything. No one can ever cover everything that's in Scripture. There are nine pages of notes. I'm not going to be able to hit on everything that's in those notes in a short hour of time that we have here. Uh, so what I'm going to try to do is hit the high points as we go through. So a throne sat in heaven and one who sat on the throne and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius. A jasper and a sardius. What color are jasper and sardius? Green? Clear? Sorry? Clear? Jasper is clear, sardius is red. Gene, where are you? Where am I? Number three. I'm in verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. Are you in chapter 4, verse 3? So what John sees is an image sitting on the throne, but he doesn't see the clear outlines, face, characteristics. It says there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. What does the rainbow remind us of? Remember at the flood, it was a promise of peace. So I would take this as a symbol of peace. A rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald is very interesting. If you remember the old, uh, what was the old movie, The Wizard of Oz, and the city looked like an emerald, didn't it? Oh green and glowing. Uh, it's very interesting from verse 3 on, what we're actually seeing is something very similar to what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7, verses 4 through 13. You remember he saw the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, and then he saw the Ancient of Days being approached by one like the Son of Man. So very, very similar, 
And again, the connections between Revelation and the Old Testament are everywhere. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed with white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Lots of argument, who are the 24 elders? A lot of people think they're angels. I'm convinced they're not because of what we see in the context of the text. Uh, I think the 24 elders probably represent the church, and probably we could look at them as maybe some of the greats that come out of the church age. Maybe, say, the great ones, the heroes, um, the ones who excelled uh, during the church age, but they represent the church as a whole. 24 elders sitting, and they've got the white robes. Of course, white robes, picture of the righteousness of Christ. They had crowns of gold on their head. We know in the New Testament there are five different crowns that are promised to the overcomer. Those who overcome are promised a reward. And at the judgment seat of Christ, as our lives are evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ, there are those that are going to receive the reward of a crown. So here we have crowns of gold on their head. By the way, the word crown is Stephanos, and it spoke of the victor's crown. So this, again, relates back to the overcomers. From the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Wouldn't you like to know what they said? In chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, John says the thunder spoke again, and he was going to write down as a part of this book what the thunder said, and he was told not to write. Isn't it interesting? I don't know about you, but I've heard sermons on what the seven thunders said. The truth is we don't know. He didn't tell us. We might be better off for not knowing. <laughs> we were not allowed to know at this point. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Why the seven spirits of God? Any ideas? Um, completion, Go back to Isaiah 11 with me. Way back to Isaiah. This is the best biblical answer that I think we can find. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. It's interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to both as the root and the offspring of David. As God, he is the root of David. As man, he's the offspring. So we have the deity and humanity of Christ pictured there. Verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. I think all of these are simply expressing the character of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the wisdom of the Spirit, the understanding of the Spirit, counsel, might, all of those things. So I take this to be the seven spirits of God. Verse 6 says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. What does that mean? I don't know. It's a sea of glass like crystal. Obviously it would imply purity, 
Uh, later on in the book, the sea is used as a picture of the nations. The multitudes of the nations could represent the multitudes of those who have been purified standing before the Lord. That would be the closest that I could give you. But sea of glass like crystal in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Very interesting. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Anyone remember these occurring or appearing anywhere else? Go back to Ezekiel chapter 1. Very interesting, though, they're not described in exactly the same way. But they are described as a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. Why is that? Well, <clears throat> one suggestion that's been presented, these four represent the story of the life of Christ. If you think about it, the Gospel of Matthew presents Christ how? King of Israel, symbol is the lion, Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Gospel of Luke presents him as the calf, or actually would be ox. Ezekiel has it as ox. The ox being a symbol of what? Servant. It's interesting that the key word of the Gospel of Luke is immediately. It's a word that was specifically used of an obedient servant. Some, sorry, Mark. Yes, sorry, Mark. Um, and sometimes it's translated straightway, uh, immediately. Uh, that is used in the Gospel of Mark. Luke, of course, places his emphasis on the humanity of Christ. Uh, Luke is a very human gospel, uh, and it deals a lot with his interactions with the down-and-out people. Uh, one of the reasons that many people, uh, I don't know if you remember a guy by the name of Brennan Manning. Uh, Brennan Manning wrote a book called The Ragamuffin. Ragamuffin Gospel. Thank you. And the emphasis on it was from Luke because it was Jesus dealing with ragamuffin-type people. So the humanity of Christ, and then, of course, the eagle, flying eagle, a picture of the gospel of John, the deity of Christ. Just a possibility, something to think about. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. The emphasis on eyes, I believe, has to do with divine intelligence, supernatural intelligence. What do our eyes do? Our eyes tell us. That's, that's how we gather information. They do not rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy. Where have we met these before? Isaiah. Isaiah, Isaiah 6.3. Holy, holy, holy. Why holy, holy three times? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Who's that the emphasis of? So Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, Whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. I've run into a lot of believers who say, I'm not interested in eternal rewards. I don't care whether I get a crown or not. I'll just be happy to be there. We need to understand that the winning of the crown is not for us. Mm 
It's not for our credit. It's for His glory. Any reward that any of us gain, and every one of us has the opportunity to win eternal reward, everything from, as Jesus said, giving a thirsty child a cup of cold water in His name. Nan and I had the opportunity while we were in Australia. Where were we walking along when we saw the guy on the street? You remember? No legs or, or no arms. Where was that? in Fremantle somewhere, a little guy, midget guy, no arms, um, sitting there basically the way that you see everywhere in India, begging. It's the only way he has to make anything. So <clears throat> I dropped some money in his plate, and I said, I want you to receive this from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Nan gave him a little coin, and she had to hand him the coin for him to take in his toes so that he could put it in his little thing. Just an opportunity, you know, an opportunity to do what we're told to do, which is help those who are in need and give someone, point them in the direction of the light. The Holy Spirit will do with it what he sees fit. But... The idea is you give a cup of cold water, you do something to lift, encourage, bless, you pray for other people, all of these things. Isn't it amazing that God provides us eternal life as a free gift? There's nothing we can do for it. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. We can only receive it by faith. And then as if that's not enough, he offers us the opportunity to live lives of faith and obedience so that we are as he said in Matthew 6.20, laying up treasure in heaven. And what's the value of all that? All of it is going to speak to the glory of Christ. It's in honor of what he's done for us. It's a way of expressing, if you will, our gratitude for his sacrifice and our so great salvation. So they cast their crowns before the throne. I wonder how it would feel to stand before the throne and have nothing to cast be kind of disappointing, wouldn't it? Verse 11, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now, bear in mind who's sitting on the throne. God the Father, right? We're about to see the Lord Jesus come into the picture. So God the Father is sitting on the throne, and to God the Father, glory, honor, and power, for you created all things. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Bereshith Barai Elohim et Hashemayim et Haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? What does John tell us at the beginning of his gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down in verse 3, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So who created, the Father or the Son? The answer is yes, both. They work together, right? In the Proverbs, you'll remember when it talks about the divine Word, the Logos, 
I was daily with him and daily his delight in the creation of the world. And then later in uh, Proverbs 30, the question is asked, what is God's name? Do you know it? And what is his son's name? That's a very interesting question. You have to wonder how many ancient Hebrews pondered on that and wondered, what does this mean? And of course, if they pondered long enough and searched the Old Testament scriptures enough, they would know. Chapter 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, and that's significant because we know that at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to Psalm 110, verse 1, where was he seated? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Right? So the Lord Jesus isn't going to have to go very far to receive this from the Father because he's right there. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What is the significance of being written inside and on the back? Both sides. It's written on both sides. Right, right. Unfortunately, I can't tell you the significance. Yeah, well, it's, it was typical in the ancient world that that was how a title deed was written. It would be written on the front and on the back. So, I'm sorry. Doesn't that harken back to Jeremiah and his scroll? Uh, yeah, I don't recall that right offhand, but it may. Okay. When uh, Barakiah was recording his prophecies, Maybe. Um, yeah, I, I don't, you know, my feeble human mind doesn't connect to that, but very possible. But it was uh, typical of a title deed in the ancient world that it would be written front and back, and then it would be sealed. The fact that it's sealed with seven seals shows something of the significance. This is very important. In order to break the seal, you had to be the person to whom the deed was given. And so in verse 2, John says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming, and you're going to see through the book of Revelation, angels everywhere. You and I are not aware of just how involved angels are in our lives. But we are surrounded by angelic beings. Scripture tells us that we are protected. We have a guardian angel, if you will. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, for example, tells us that the entire angelic realm is mobilized on behalf of those who become heirs of eternal life. So we are being served all the time, protected all the time by angelic beings, and we're not even aware of it. In the book of Revelation, they come out of the woodwork. And uh, I think during the time of tribulation, uh, there's going to be a lot of things become visible that were not visible before. No one in heaven or on earth, verse 3, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. No one in heaven or on the earth. I mean, think of all the great heroes of faith. Moses, not worthy. Paul, not worthy. No one on the earth, so at the time when this scroll is about to be opened, maybe six months from now, a year from now, we can hope. So it implies that 
there is no one not just worthy of the scroll, but it hasn't been given to who it's supposed to be given yet. Right. They don't have the right or the authority. I wouldn't want to open that scroll. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to open it. So notice that it says under the earth. Why does it say under the earth? Who would be under the earth? Hell. Okay. You remember, you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Mm -hmm. Most people think that's a parable. Do you know how to tell the difference between a parable and an actual story? When you have an actual story being told, someone in the story, maybe everyone in the story will be named. People in parables are not named. Uh, and you will have uh, sometimes the phrase, a certain man. If you go through the New Testament and study all the times when it says a certain man, like in Luke chapter uh, 11, Luke chapter 10, sorry, Jesus comes into Bethany and there was a certain woman in Bethany named Martha. When it says a certain person, it's specific. It's talking about an actual living person. So when you have the story of the rich man and Lazarus, you have two things that give you a clue. There was a certain rich man and at his gate a beggar named Lazarus. I find this very interesting because why isn't the rich man named? You know, the Bible talks a lot about blotting your name out of the book. And a lot of people have never caught on that as you go through the Bible story, there are a whole lot of people who play important parts, unfortunately, not good parts. They're never named. He's not worthy. That's it. That's it. So as an example in the story of Ruth, you remember that Boaz had an older brother and the older brother had the right of redemption of Ruth and all the lands, but he didn't want to do it because Ruth was a Moabitess. That was a bad connotation. And therefore, when he comes to the gate, it's really hilarious in Hebrew. <clears throat> The, the way our English Bibles read, it says, Ho, friend, turn in here. This is Boaz speaking to his older brother. Ho, friend, turn in here. But that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, Ho, Mr. So-and-so. It's Poloni Almoni. And it's like, it's an insult. To, like if I said, John, hey, so-and-so, would you lead us in singing? It's, you know, it's kind of an insult. So the names end up oftentimes blotted out. Well, that was kind of a rabbit trail, but at least we killed the rabbit. The idea of under the earth, think of it, any person in all of history that died without Christ, maybe Alexander, what about Nimrod? Nimrod had the first international order. He's not worthy. Caesars, no. No one of all the greats of history is even worthy to open this book. And so John, in verse 4, begins weeping. He didn't just weep. He wept a lot. He was having a cry fest. And why was that? Because he wanted to know what was in the book. What's in the book? 
He realized the significance of the book. He realized that this is something of utmost importance. Here we are in heaven, and the focus has gone from the Father on the throne to this book, and no one can open it. John thinks that he's going to be without the rest of the story. The book of Revelation is going to end in Revelation 5.5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Again, going back to the lion in verse 7. The lion of the tribe of Judah, here called the root, not the offspring, but the root of David, has prevailed. When did Jesus prevail? Obviously on the cross. It is finished. That was his victory. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I look, John says, in verse 6, And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. I mentioned earlier Psalm 110, verse 1, And what did the Father say to the Son when he ascended into his presence? Sit at my right hand. Next word, one of those small words, very important. Until. It's a time word. Until. This is the until. Now he's standing. Right? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. You might uh, just tuck away in your mind that word slain because it occurs three times in this chapter. Stressing the importance of the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Having seven horns and seven eyes, you say, I didn't know Jesus was going to look like this. <laughs> well, once again, symbolism is being used. It's not always describing the actual appearance of the person. It's describing something about them. And the horn in Scripture is a symbol of what? Strength. Power. Power and authority. And the eyes, as we said, intelligence. Uh, if you hang on to the idea of power and wisdom, it's going to come up again in just a moment. So it had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. I refer to these as the omni-attributes. If you just want to shrink them down and make it simple, God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient, all-knowing, and he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. You know, what, what a thrill for us to know that he's present with us tonight. Where two or three are gathered together, he said he's right here. Verse 7, then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls of incense, very important, which are the prayers of the saints. Did you ever stop and think that every prayer you pray is on record? You know, David, I believe it's Psalm 56, 8. Uh, I think that's the reference either that or Psalm 58, 6, one of the two. You know, my mind's not as sharp as it once was, but... Um, he says, you have kept my tears in your bottle. In the ancient world, they used to have tear bottles. And when they were going through a tremendous grief, they would actually hold the bottle under their eye 
and they would let tears drip into it and then they would write on that bottle what that experience or that particular grief was that they were going through and those tears were like a little memorial. Well, <clears throat> for us, more important even than the tears are the prayers. And our prayers are on record. And it says here that the, the prayers are incense offered before God. That's going to come up again in chapter 8, I think verse 3. You're going to have an angel offering incense before God, and the incense is the prayers of the saints. If you think about the fact in the Old Testament that every single morning they would light the lamps, they would prepare the bread, and they would carry coals from the altar of sacrifice, which was outside the tabernacle, into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but before the veil, and they would light the altar of incense, and there the priest would offer incense, and the smoke of it would go up. And what was it a picture of? It was a picture of the prayers of the saints. You'll remember uh, in the story of uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias, and you'll remember when Zacharias went into the temple at his time, his allotted time, to act as the priest, it was his time to offer incense. And when he went in to offer incense, what were all the people outside doing? The people outside were all praying because they realized that this represents our prayers being lifted up to God. So the next time you pray, think of a couple of things. Number one, your prayers are going to be on record. Make sure they're good prayers. Make sure that they are biblical prayers. Make sure they're unselfish prayers but also realize that those prayers are something that come before God as a sweet-smelling offering. Hebrews 13 talks about offering up the sacrifice of praise, and that is something so valuable in God's sight. So the prayers of the saints are offered up, and you can connect that. I mentioned Revelation 8.3, also Hebrews 13.15. And then verse 9, they sang a new song. Who is the they that are singing the new song? Well, it's the elders and those who are with them. And I include us in that group. They sang a new song. John is not going to know this song before we get there. No Christian artist is going to record this song before we get there. We are given part of it. I'm convinced there are stanzas that we're not given. But they're singing, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. Remember I mentioned earlier that this is stressed three times in the chapter. So valuable is the sacrifice of Christ. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. In other words, you paid the price. The idea of redemption when it relates to people has the slave block in mind. You're a slave, you're standing on the slave block. There are different Greek words that are used uh, for this. I think four different words translated redemption uh, in our New Testament. Uh, but one of them is apolutrao, which is very important. Lutrao means to pay the price, to set you free, but the apo, the preposition, has the idea of taking you away from. So the, the whole picture is the price was paid, you were set free, and then you were let go. 
That's the idea of redemption. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue. You know, I think of all the different tribes that I've seen in my lifetime. Tribe after tribe after tribe. I've seen the Igbo. I've seen the SA people. You know, we've seen the, uh, what are the folks in, again, my, huh? In Nagaland. Not Nagaland. In, in uh, Burma. The Lisu, which I think are the, I think they're the relatives of our Sioux Indians. It's very strange when you go there, you look at them and you think, that's a Sioux Indian looking at you. I'm not so sure when they came over here and the whites finally had contact with them, they said, who are you? And they said, Lisu, because of course they were speaking French as they came down through Canada, right? Lisu, I don't know. Sioux Indians, maybe so. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, no group not represented. And notice, you have made us kings and priests. Who are kings and priests? Church age believers. No Old Testament believer was a king priest except one. Who was that? Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews, which we studied recently, how many times did we read, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? So when we come into 1 Peter, which I've been working real hard on 1 Peter because that's what I'm teaching in Arkansas next weekend. Is it next weekend? Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> it's closing in on me and I'm still working on all the notes. Um, and 1 no Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 through 9, we are a royal priesthood. The very fact that these people are singing and saying, you redeemed us and you have made us kings and priests, what does it tell us? Tell us it's church-age believers, right? So we have the church in heaven. Are any believers in the tribulation going to be royal priests? No. Church-age only. That's one of the privileges we have that no one of any other time of history is going to enjoy among many, many of the things that we have in Christ. You have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. You feel like doing a little bit of reigning? A little bit of ruling? I'd like to do some right now, but can't do it. One day we will. And one day I believe each one of us is going to be allotted certain responsibilities in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to exercise authority. We shall reign on the earth. John says, then I looked in verse 11, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. How many is this? Well, you could keep adding thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. Couldn't be counted. Saying with a loud voice. Now they're joining in. I mean, I'm not uh, gifted musically by any means, but I would think for someone who has musical gifts, whether singing or, or playing, I would think passages like this would be worth just pondering on. 
So here you have all of the saints of all of the generations in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ singing. I mean, just think what that would sound like. The rafters of heaven are ringing. And then a second chorus joins in behind and it is thousands, ten thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of angelic beings. I love great music. Could never produce it. Couldn't sing it, but I absolutely love good music. And this is going to be something worth hearing. Worthy is the lamb. What's the emphasis on? Lamb. Who was slain. Third time in the passage. To receive power and riches and wisdom. See that idea that we link back there with the horns and the eyes? Power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, we've had the first chorus, church age saints, second chorus, angels. Now look at this, verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Did you realize that there is a day coming when every created thing is going to be singing praises to Jesus Christ. In fact, and you might think I'm a little off the beam, of course you may have already, in the Old Testament it tells us that when the kingdom begins, what is the song? The mountains and hills shall clap their hands. The mountains and hills shall clap their hands. And it says that the mountains and the hills and the trees and the rivers will begin to sing. You might think that that's just imagery. I believe it's actually going to happen. I really do. I believe it's actually going to happen. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the Pharisees rebuked his disciples, told him to rebuke them and said, tell them to stop saying what they're saying because they were speaking messianic prophecy. He said, verily I tell you, if these keep silence, the very rocks of the earth will cry out. I believe it's going to happen one day. I can't wait to see it because I love nature and I love just creation and to think of all creation just joining in and singing. Blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne of the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. The 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. That is the last beautiful picture that you're going to see until chapter 20. Because the rest is horrible. The rest? <laughs> There's a reason it's called tribulation. We will not be in the tribulation. We will experience tribulation but not the tribulation. You understand what I'm saying? We'll go through hardship, difficulty. I mean, look around, look at your world. I don't know if you see it the way I do, but it looks to me like the world is unraveling. Uh, we're seeing things that are absolutely, I would be terrified if I was not a believer. <clears throat> absolutely terrified. Jesus talked about these times, and I want to leave you with this because next week I'm teaching 1 Peter, and the theme of the conference is prepare for persecution. Can we see that somehow? 
Uh, it will be up on the website. You can you can listen to it on the website and the notes. All the notes will be up. I'm at about page, I think, 30. We're going to have 100, 150 people there, so I'm going to have to print 150 copies of 30. It's like a book, you know. Um, I was going somewhere with that. Oh, prepare for persecution. Because unless the Lord comes back, we're going to see it. We're already seeing it. It's already happening, but it's going to intensify. And I told Nan, I'm going to lead off with some of the things that are going on in our world, which are very strange. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to say to the group, I'm terrified. And I'll pause long enough for them to think, why are you terrified? You're not supposed to be terrified. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to say, I'm terrified of not facing whatever tomorrow may bring in faith. That's, that's my fear. If we face every day in faith, when Jesus spoke to the disciples and he said, you're going to be hearing, and we're seeing all of this, aren't we? Wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes in many places. Welcome to our world. What did he say? See that you are not afraid. See that you're not afraid. And I think it's a challenge to each and every one of us. And if I can accomplish one thing at this upcoming conference, I will feel that I have done my job. And that is to make each and every one of us as a believer examine our lives and say, what in my life is not pleasing to God? What do I need to get in order? Because I want to be walking as close to him as I possibly can. And I believe that we're living in a time that, that demands that. Not that we haven't already. I mean, life's been rough enough. How many of you have scars and bruises and stitched up hearts? And, you know, we've all been through it. But to walk in, in fellowship with him and in, in the presence of the Spirit of God, we're going to be fine. Fear not. I'll leave you with that one. Let's close with prayer. Father, we are thankful for your grace and thankful for the promises that we have. We're thankful, Father, that we know that we are surrounded by a host of mighty angelic beings who watch over us every day. We're thankful, Father, that we have God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us and moving among us and working in and through us. As we study your word and as we go out into our world and try to make an impact and have an influence on our own little missionary sphere. The people that we touch, friends, family, people on the street, everyone is a soul for whom Christ died. Help us remember this. Help us in all our interactions to act in accordance with it. And as we go our separate ways this evening, once again, I thank you for each and every one who has come out to gather with us, join with us, to honor and glorify you as we praise you. And I just pray that you'll guide, protect, and provide for each and every one. I ask this in the precious, and the mighty, and the victorious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.